Amen. Well, good, good morning again, church family. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to finish verses 20 through 30 this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord again. Matthew records for us about Jesus that then he began, verse 20, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All, these, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, ever since the fall, all the way back in the garden, we have been rebels with a cause, haven't we? Uh, we are a people who, who buck up against authority. And so we, we have sayings that, that kind of uh, that express this rebel spirit in us. Uh, sayings like this. This was... Uh, a motto that I live by, especially in my teenage years. Rules are meant to be what? Broken. Yes, they were. Um, or as uh, the great philosopher Bob Seeger reminds us, uh, we break all the rules that we bend, right? And, uh, and so that's just really inherent in who we are. And, uh, and so we, we're, we're opposed to authority. But I think what really gets us worked up is when we see people exercising authority that we don't think they have, right? That really gets us worked up. So maybe, hypothetically, you've been driving on veterans um, after Sunday, and you notice a police officer stops all traffic to let another church out. How dare they? <laughs> don't they know I need to get going too? And so you're... you're, 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 you're you, uh, you buck against it, but it's a police officer. There's nothing we can do about it. But I'll tell you what really missed me when it's a construction worker and not the police officer, right? 
Who said that you get to stop the lanes? And maybe you've thought, what are they going to do? What are they going to do if I just go around them? That little stop sign, that means nothing. You know, I can go buy one of those at Lowe's. That means absolutely nothing to me. And I assume there probably is some law if you did it. But you feel that tension. You don't like it when somebody else... Well, you don't like it when other people tell you what to do, but especially those people who don't have the authority to tell you what to do. Well, it's Jesus' claim to authority that is beginning to cause him trouble with the, with the religious leaders, the crowds. Um, and in particular, it's because they don't think he has that authority. He's claiming something they don't think he has. Now, if you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount... Um, This is what the people were saying. They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Well, at this point in the gospel, it seems that their jaws are dropped. They, They are in shock. They're not sure what to think about Jesus. They're just in wonder. Wow, he is he is saying things that none of our teachers would dare say. Who is this one, they were asking. But by the time we get to this point in the gospel, their wonder is over, at least for the majority of them. And as this story unfolds, it's becoming apparent to them that that maybe Jesus is is calling uh, and claiming too much authority for himself. And and so in the case of the religious leaders, really from the beginning for them, they, they were always saying, who does this man think he is? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins and... And Jesus is claiming authority to do that. Well, the people, they, they seem to not be as, as hostile, but they're just growing indifferent. They're just ignoring him now. Yeah, we've seen the signs. We've, we've seen the, uh, the, the, uh, the miracles. But yeah, I've been there, done that. Where's the new show? But what I want you to see in both cases, whether it's the religious leader's um, uh, expressive hatred towards Jesus, or it's just the crowds growing indifferent to them, they're both being offended by Jesus' authority. They're turned off by it, if you will. Yet what we saw last Sunday, if you just flip there to verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. To be offended by Jesus may look like the religious leaders who have explicit hatred towards him, but it can also take the form of a passive expression of indifference. Both responses are a rejection to Jesus' authority. And so this morning as we consider Jesus' authority, that's what we're going to see put front and center really for the next couple of weeks, that Jesus is going to claim more and more authority. And so this morning in our passage, I want to encourage us not to be offended, not to be offended by him, whether that's an outright I oppose him or to an indifference to him. But rather, as we hear his authority, we see his authority, that we would come to him and we would submit to him because he alone, as he's going to tell us, can give us rest for our weary souls. He alone can give us rest from the endless burdens of our life. And it's actually his authority that bids us to come to him. The things that he's saying here, 
the woes, and then, and, and then some other things that we'll d- jump into, they are all calling you to say, your only hope's in Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. In particular, Jesus invites us to come to him by faith because he has authority to judge, he has divine authority, and he has saving authority. So I want us to look first at his judging authority. His judging authority bids us to come to him. Come to him. Now, the scriptural warnings of judgment, and you heard uh, in those first uh, four verses or five verses, you heard Jesus' judgment against these cities, Chorazin and uh, Bethsaida and Capernaum. Well, the scriptural warnings of God's judgment are not meant to drive people away. They're actually meant to draw people in. Think about Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because even though he had a message of, you're, you're going to die, <laughs> wasn't a real positive one. Yet Jonah knew that they would repent. He knew. That's how God's words of judgment work. And so it's for this reason that Jesus begins to denounce the cities, but not just any cities, where most of his mighty works had been done. So this is, Jesus is going back around to the, the areas that he's been ministering out in Galilee, in particular Capernaum, um, um, uh, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And these are where most of the miracles had been done that we have re- read of Jesus. And so to these cities, Jesus pronounces woes to them. I mean, that just sounds uh, prophetic, doesn't it? Woe to you. I've actually had uh, people come to the church and pronounce woes to me in the office um, before. Um, that's other stories that I'll share with you afterwards. But none of you, none of you, though. Uh, but who have quoted this? Woe to you. Woe to you. What are woes? Woes are curses. Cursed you. It's not something that we usually say. We, we, we curse at people. Hopefully not we, but... You know, Humanity, but, but these are bringing down damnation, God's wrath. Woes in the Old Testament are often found among the prophets to threaten those, and, and typically this was even Israel, but, but even the surrounding nations, to threaten those who oppose God and to warn them of impending judgment. And it wasn't just that it's coming, it, that if unless you change it's coming, it's It's coming. Woe to you, you're done. That was kind of the the indictment. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's pronouncing judgment upon these cities which have opposed him. Or to put it another way, the cities who have taken offense at him. In fact, he tells them that the day of judgment will be more bearable for pagan cities like Tyre and Sidon than it will be for them. He says something very similar to Capernaum. And Capernaum has been Jesus' home base of operations. This is likely where, where Peter uh, grew up and where Peter lived, and they were operating out of Peter's house. This is home base for him, and he tells them. It's, it's kind of like maybe they, they hear him declaring these woes, and, and I don't know how this is going on, but maybe there's a crowd for Capernaum, and he says, and you, Capernaum, like, oh, you're not getting off the hook. I haven't even gotten started with you. He tells them, you're not going to be exalted by God. 
It's interesting. I don't, I don't know what their perspective was. He asked them this question in verse 23. Will you be exalted to heaven? You know, I don't know what they were thinking. It seems that they were awfully proud about themselves. And Jesus says, no, you're going to go down to Hades. You're going to be brought down. And Jesus provides another contrast for them. The ancient city, Sodom. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you, you perhaps might be familiar with Sodom. You've, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you. Why does Jesus pronounce such stinging judgments on these cities? Why does he do that? Well, do you see it in verse 20? Because they did not repent. They did not repent. Now, I want you to notice something. God's judgment or the threat of God's judgment comes after the offers of mercy have been extended. Do you see that? He goes to the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. This is, this is the places where he's been ministering, where he's preaching the gospels. Do you see that? This is where Jesus came preaching and teaching and healing the people. And why was he doing this? Why was he preaching the coming of the kingdom? Which was, repent for the kingdom is, is at hand. And he would open up the scriptures from Isaiah and he'd say, uh, this scripture has been fulfilled in your he healing, hearing. And he would heal the lame. He would heal the blind. He would give sight or, or he'd give hearing to the, to the deaf. He'd open the, 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 the tongue of the mute. He would raise the dead. All these things were extensions of God's mercy saying, come, come to Jesus, for he can save you from your sins. And yet, despite this great privilege, I mean, this is a greater privilege than even we have shared. They spurn the grace of God. They're indifferent to it. They turn their backs and they ignore the offers that have come from Christ. And so what we see here, brothers and sisters, is that, is that to reject the grace of God in Christ is to bring judgment upon yourself. It's a hard word, isn't it? To reject the grace of Christ is to incur the wrath of God. And what's especially sobering is that the greater the grace rejected, we see, the greater the judgment will be incurred. That's what Jesus is helping them understand. Do you see that in the two comparisons? He tells Chorazin and Bethsaida, if the miracles done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon were, were out in Gentile territory, just a little bit further out, he says, if I just went down to those pagans who don't know God, and I had done these things, they would be like Nineveh when Jonah went and preached judgment to them. And they would repent in sackcloth and ashes. That, that was just an ancient way of, of mourning and showing your grief over your sin and, 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 and humbling yourself before God. But you guys, you don't even bat an eye. You ignored everything that I have said. And so it will be more bearable for them who have not received the grace 
than it will be for you. Now, no, it doesn't mean that Tyre and Sodom don't go to judgment. It just means their judgment is less strict, is, is less severe than, than the Israelites in these two cities. And then similarly of, of Sodom. Now, Sodom's the most vile city in the Old Testament. I don't need to repeat it all. It, it is renowned in the scriptures. It's even common lingo today to describe sins that characterized that city. I mean, no one can be worse than Sodom. Yet Jesus says, Capernaum, you are. You take the cake. And which would have been shocking to them. They're not doing the things that were going on in Sodom. But what they have done is they have rejected Jesus. They have rejected Jesus who has come before them. And he says it will be more bearable for them or for, you, for them than for you. He says, if I had showed up then, that city would still exist. Sodom doesn't exist anymore. God literally rained down fire and brimstone and turned everyone into dust or salt. Only Lot and his two daughters survived. The city does not exist. And he says, if I had showed up, it would still be here today. And yet, you're different to me. What a warning this is for gospel-filled America. What a warning it is for us. There are very few, if you think about it, if any, very few, if any, cities in America that don't have at least one Bible-teaching, compassionate body of Christ extending the gospel out in the world. Very few. Doesn't mean every church is as good as they could be, but, but the gospel is there. America has been reached by and large. That doesn't mean there aren't people I haven't heard. We're just praying for the pages, but the pages are connecting to a church in Pittsburgh where the gospel is there, and there's opportunity that in other parts of the world, there's no opportunity. There's no gospel. And I think you could deduce from this that it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for those people than those who have lived here and have spurned the grace of God. The greater the grace rejected, the greater the judgment incurred. I mean, this is a, even a warning for our children. Children, if you're listening, you have a great privilege that many children do not have. You, you hear the gospel Every day, you see it lived out in your, your, your believing parents. You're, you're here at church on Sunday. You're hearing the gospel now. Uh, you're, you're hearing it constantly. And Jesus says, don't, don't spurn the grace that has been extended to you. Trust me. I've offered mercy to you. And, 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 and there's a sense in which those who've grown up in the church, this is true even for us as adults, if we've been around church all our life, but we've never bowed the knee, it will be a, a greater judgment for us than those who had never stepped foot in these doors. It'll be a greater judgment. Yet even with this pronouncement of judgment, Jesus intends for it to produce repentance. This is still the grace of God. I mean, this is still, the warning is Grace. And Jesus intends for this woe and curse to waken them up. Wow, we are worse than Sodom. We are worse than the pagans. Those people who wouldn't even claim God, who do horrible things in our eyes. Yet, that we are opposed to God. 
and it would bring them back. This is what Jeremiah even says, or the Lord says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, meaning if any time I tell them I'm going to judge you, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So when we when the judgment comes, Jesus brings it to these cities, or when we we preach the judgment you're hearing now, it's intended to cause you to repent. If you repent, God will relent. If you repent, God will relent. So I hope you see the warnings of God's judgment and wrath that are to come, they aren't meant to drive people away. That even should change how we preach sometimes. Jesus isn't saying this because he hates them. He is declaring some harsh truths, but it's because he wants to waken them up. He loves them and he wants them to come back. So how is it that Jesus is able to make such pronouncements? I mean, that's some authority. I mean, to go out and start telling people the wrath of God is upon you and you're worse than all these other pagan people. I mean, talk about authority. How is he able to say that? What gives him the right to judge? That would be maybe what we would say today. Well, he has the right to judge because he has divine authority. And so this is another reason we should come to Jesus because he has divine authority. Now, Jesus does something here that at first seems strikingly odd. Look in verse 25. At that time, so he's just declared this judgment upon these cities. And so at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. What? You're thankful because you've hidden these things. Well, what things? truth of who Jesus is in the kingdom that he declares. What's going on here? Why are they not responding? Because you've hidden the reality of what I'm preaching from them, God. Do you see that? You've hidden it from the wise and understanding. And he goes on and says, but and revealed them to little children. This is what the scripture speaks of elsewhere as the doctrine of divine election. It's right here. You can look at it, Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 1 Peter 1, 2 John 1. Those are just samplings off the top of my head. But this is what Jesus is, is talking about. You, you've hidden it from some and you've revealed it to others. God, you did this. And Jesus is praising God for this reality. I think oftentimes when we hear that doctrine, that wouldn't be our response. We'd say, it's there in the Bible, but I don't know why God would do it that way. We're we're burdened by it. We may be offended by it. But Jesus thanks the Father, praises God for it. Now, why would he do this? Why would Jesus thank God for his purposes in election? Or if you want to just use the language here of hiding it to some and revealing it to others. This is why. Because as Jesus is preaching, 
in teaching, even declaring the judgment to come when, when, when the kingdom is revealed. He is praising God because he knows that God's purposes in him and the gospel are being accomplished according to what? Verse 26, your gracious will. This is happening according to your purposes. Your purposes are being accomplished even as I'm being rejected. Do you see that? Now, here, here's an important, important distinction that I want to help you with. These are, I know that we're treading into deep water. We don't always do this, but Jesus drug us down here, okay? Um, while Jesus and the Father do not delight in the death of the wicked, they don't. You can look at Ezekiel 18, verse 23. The Father says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, even though judgment's coming. That's the point. Or Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you. Like a hen gathers his chicks, but, but you would have not. You would have nothing of it. They do not rejoice. That's not what he's doing. Ha, 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 you're going to hell. That's not what Jesus is doing here. They aren't delighting in the death of the wicked, but... They are delighting when God's justice prevails. Now, we do this too. We get a glimpse of this even on a human level uh, when we think of a trial, when justice is rightly served, the conviction is, is brought. We, we rejoice that justice has been served, but we don't delight in the evil that took place to bring it about, right? There, there's, a, there's kind of two levels by which you're looking at this. But justice was served. Well, that's what's in a similar way going on here. Jesus gives thanks and praise to God because as the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and this is a marvelous mystery, as the gospel is preached, God's justice is being served. There's a sense in which as the gospel, it is good news for those who believe. For those who believe. I hope you're connecting the dots from our pastoral reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 30. That's Paul saying the same thing. The foolishness of the cross destroys the wisdom of the wise. And so Jesus is glorying in the wisdom of God and his plan. It destroys the wisdom of the wise, the proud. And so brothers and sisters, we can always praise God in our gospel efforts, even when in a sense, we, even when we're rejected, because we know that God's purposes are still being fulfilled. doesn't mean we stop sharing the gospel or anything like that. But we can, we can always give thanks to God for what is occurring. See, in God's infinite wisdom, the message of the gospel goes out and it always does what he intends it to do. So what, what, what the, he says to the prophet Isaiah, uh, that my word will not return to me void. Now, if you've ever paid attention to Isaiah's calling as a prophet, when he says, here I am, Lord, send me, he says, go speak to a people who have ears but will not hear, who have eyes and will not see. It's actually kind of an odd message. You're going to go preach a message that everyone will reject. 
It's actually a means of judgment on the, on, on the nation of Israel, and only a remnant will believe. But the same message, the same ministry, Isaiah, will produce death in some and life in others. That's what's happening here. Jesus is bearing the ministry in a far greater way than Isaiah. And so when the gospel goes out, when we preach the word, that's happening actually right now. It either hardens some and they reject, or it softens others and they receive. That's happening. The gospel is packaged in such a way that the wise and understanding cannot see it or receive it. Now, that begs the question, who are the wise and understanding? Well, this are, these are the prideful, the self-reliant, those who believe, I don't need Jesus in his mercy, I'm just fine. They're convinced that they are better off without God. This is the friends of the world, if you will. Yet the little children, well, they're the inverse of that. They are the humble, those who see their need, those who are not self-reliant and do not love the world, but feel as if they are the world's rejects. This is what Paul was saying. Let me just refresh your memory. Verses 27 and 28 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose, there's that electing language again, what is foolish in the world, why? Now get this, don't be offended. God chose you, the foolish, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, meaning the nobodies, to bring to nothing things that are. I mean, just, just consider this for a moment. This is, by and large, you and I are nobodies in the world. We might think we are, maybe in our little circles, maybe our little spheres, but on the grand scheme of things, we're nobodies. That doesn't mean that God never saves somebodies. You'll, you'll see every now and then there will be somebody. I mean, I think the most recent one would be like Kanye West. I hope he really has church in Christ. Like, it's a big deal because we're like, he has the world, he has everything, and he's seemingly trusted Christ. That's not normal. But it also doesn't mean just because you're poor, you don't have money, or that you're, you're, you're oppressed doesn't mean that you automatically are saved either. But, as Jesus says, it's easier for a, a, a camel to go through the eye of an evil than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There, there's there's a, a, a way by which God has designed the world and presented Christ, presented the gospel, that those who are very cozy and love the world, they will look at this and they will say, Whatever. And that's the judgment of God. He's designed it so it has it just it brings it. It only can be received by those who are already broken. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So God in his infinite wisdom brings the message of forgiveness to the world in a way that the proud and self-reliant never understand it, never receive it. And so when we think of it like this, Jesus, let's just think about his coming. God sent his son, born in an animal trough, 
raised in the backwoods towns of Nazareth, a son of a carpenter, a friend of rejects and nobodies, and who would ultimately suffer a criminal's death. Come follow him. No. Nobody in the right mind, the world would say, would ever want to do that. That's a nobody. And yet, this is the wisdom of God which is putting to shame the wisdom of man. Do you see that? That's what's happening in the world. And so Jesus gives thanks to him. Now, I just want you to see there's a couple other places because it's going to come up in Matthew. I want you to just flip over to chapter 13 when we get to the parables of the kingdom. And this, this same concept is bundled up in why does Jesus speak in parables? Have you ever wondered? Well, because they have a dual function. To the wise and understanding, they hide. To little children, they reveal. Okay? And I want you to just see this uh, in, in verse 10 and 11. And then actually a couple other places, but we'll, we'll move on. Then the disciples came and said to Jesus or him, why do you speak to them, that's the crowds, in parables? And he, that's Jesus, answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Do you see that? Why do the disciples know and understand? Because it's been given to them. Why do they not? Because it hasn't been given to them. Go on. Look in verse 16. So now we have another one of these blessed uh, statements where Jesus says, Blessed are your eyes, it's again to the disciples, for they see and your ears, for they hear. You're blessed because God has revealed he hasn't hidden these things from you. Then come to chapter 16. This is uh, when Jesus is asking, hey, who do people say that I am? And, and people are saying, hey, he, he's one of the prophets. He's Elijah. He's John the Baptist. And then Jesus says to the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Simon Peter replied, see that in verse 15? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He sees. He gets it. He knows who Jesus is. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you. There it is again. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why, brothers and sisters, do you see Christ in his beauty? Why do you come to Jesus? Because the Father has not hidden these things from you. He's been gracious to you. He's shown mercy to you. And it is this divine authority to conceal and reveal which is actually shared with Jesus. Look in verse 27 back in our text. So Jesus makes this declaration of God's divine authority. Authority to conceal and reveal. But look in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. There's an intimate relationship here, a knowledge. And only we know each other. And then at the end, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay. What's Jesus doing? Well, first of all, he's making an exclusive claim to div divine authority, isn't he? 
He, he is the true revelation of God. That's what he's saying. No one knows the Father except me. And so if you're going to know the Father, you've got to know me. I'm the only one who can lead you there. And guess what? I only reveal the Father to whomever I choose. That's what he's saying. He is the true revelation of the Father, and he bears the same divine prerogatives of the Father. He, too, can hide and conceal or conceal and reveal, excuse me. And so the only way, do you see this? This is why you gotta come to Jesus. The only way to come to the Father is to know the Son. And the Son only reveals the Father to whom he wills. Are you offended by his authority? I've really made pains to make you see that this isn't Chase. This is Jesus saying these things. Are you offended by verse 27? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. This is good news, actually. You shouldn't be offended. Such authority is to drive you to him, not drive you away. It's to drive you to him. Why? He's your only hope. He holds your life in his hands. Why would you go to anyone else? The only way to come to the Father is through the Son, and the Son holds the keys to whether you can come to the Father. So you better go to the Son. Don't reject Him. Come to Him. That leads us to our final point. Come to Jesus because He has saving authority. Yes, Jesus has divine authority to conceal and reveal, and this is why he calls you to come to him. Yet notice, who is it that Jesus calls to? Do you see it? All who labor and are heavy laden. These are the little children, not the wise. These are the humble and the broken. Just think about this. What does it mean to labor and be heavy laden? These are those who feel the weight of the curse of sin taking its toll on their life, maybe through sickness, poverty, death. I mean, this is the Sermon on the Mount again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This message is only for the broken. Those who feel the weight of the curse of sin or, or those who are burdened. Maybe this is you. You're burdened by your inability to make yourself righteous. That's what the Pharisees were doing. You must be like us. You must adhere to all the rules. Ding, 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 ding. Up, you broke it. You walked one too many steps on the Sabbath day. Sorry. Maybe you're burdened. Maybe you feel like, I gotta keep coming to church. I can't, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta read my Bible. I failed, I didn't pray today. And you are, you've got all these lists. I'm not good enough, Jesus. And he says, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Or maybe you're just weary. You're tired because you've been seeking happiness. You've been seeking security. You just want to feel safe. 
You just want to be freed from your anxiety. You long so much for the praises of others. You want acceptance so bad, and every time you think you might have it, it just seems to slip away. You're always left disappointed. He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're the more intellectual type, and you are always burdened because there's something you don't know. Something out there that, that you can't make a commitment to because there's so many things and, and I'm just overwhelmed. What's the truth? I'm trying to find the truth. And I'm intrigued by all these ideas, but yet my, my intrigue seems to enslave me and burden me because I can't know everything. And Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to me, brothers and sisters, for I alone am the one who can heal you of all your diseases. I alone can give you a righteousness that is not your own. I alone can provide a hope that will not disappoint, and I alone will lead you into all truth. Do you see that? How then do we come to Jesus? Well, he tells us. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn. Now the imagery of yoke, this, Jesus never does what we think he should be doing. Okay, this is, this is more like it, Jesus. We like this come to me stuff. The first part, that probably wasn't effective in your evangelistic uh, appeals. But now, the, now you're, you're using the wrong imagery. Yokes are not happy things. Yokes sound like burdens, don't they? You ever seen a yoke on an ox? They were even people yokes back in the ancient day. We have John Deere's. But they had, they had yokes. And they could carry weights and carry more than they could carry on their own shoulders. Yes, it was to make it easier, but you were still carrying a load. You were still carrying things. And it was to remove the yoke at the end of the day that you would get rest. And then Jesus says, put on my yoke. Put me on. But this is what Jesus is doing. Again, the wise will not receive, only the, the broken. Jesus employs this imagery to invite you to put on a new yoke. Take that yoke off. Put on my yoke. This new yoke, let it carry your burdens. A yoke which, contrary to what you might expect, actually takes away your burden. It doesn't add to it. What does this yoke represent? Well, Jesus says, I think this is what he's saying, learn from me. This is what it means to put on the yoke of Christ. Learn from me. Learn from me. Well, where have we learned from Christ already? Well, we are learning through him through the Gospels, but particularly the Sermon on the Mount. It says when he saw the crowds, he went up on, on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. You want to put on the yoke of Christ? Enroll in the school of Christ. Enroll in school. Now, that sounds like a yoke to you, doesn't it? To as many of you. Ah, I don't like school. But this school is not like the one you think of. This is the school of Christ. And there in the Sermon on the Mount, we receive Christ's teaching on, on how to live as God's kingdom people. And not live according to the wisdom of this world. 
If you just think about what what the Sermon on the Mount teaches, it teaches us that only in Jesus can you have a whole person righteousness that transforms you from the inside out. It deals with the heart first, and it it comes out. You're you're burdened because you keep trying to wash the outside of the cup. But the inside hasn't been cleansed, and so you're always working and never getting anywhere. It's like running on a treadmill. You can turn it up as fast as you can, but you're still in the same spot. Jesus says, run with me. You get somewhere. Not only that, but he teaches us spiritual disciplines in chapter 6 of giving, praying, and fasting. Those, those sound like burdens, don't they? they? They feel like yokes, but yet they draw you into him and they loosen your grip from the treasures of this world, which always disappoint, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And he invites you to know the goodness of your Father. He invites you into that relationship which he alone knows so that you're free from the anxieties of the world and that you would build the house of your life upon the solid rock so that as this world around you crumbles, you're still standing. Some of you think, oh, to to follow Jesus would be a burden. Follow the Sermon on the Mount. That's too much work. And you conclude that the burdens of this world are just more important. More important than just sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think of the story of Mary and Martha. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, but Martha is busy with so many things. And he says about Mary, she has chosen the better thing. Put on his yoke. Learn from him. Why? Well, he tells us, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's beautiful, isn't it? As your pastor, I want to I be more gentle and lowly in heart. I'm sure there are times that you've come, some of you have come to me and, and been burdened and, and I have not been maybe gentle and lowly in heart. But Jesus always is. Jesus always is. And he reminds us, verse 30, for his yoke is easy and his burden, the load you're carrying is light. Notice, it's when you learn from Christ that you find the rest for your souls. Do you see that? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Okay, how, how does that happen? Learn from me and you will find rest. You will find it. Later, he's going to talk about one who's been searching for a costly pearl all their life, and then they find it, the treasure. Jesus here is extending an invitation of faith. Follow me. Follow me down the narrow road, as he says earlier. Yeah, the way's hard, and it's narrow, but it leads to life. And he says, despite what it may look like to you, this way that I'm calling you down, this yoke that I'm asking you to put on, it leads to life, it leads to joy and true happiness. And guess what? I have the authority to give it to you. That's what he's saying. I have the authority to give it to you. And so he says, come, follow me, and you will find rest. 
Let's pray. Jesus, you have shown yourself as the judge. You have shown yourself as divine. And you have showed yourself as Savior. And Lord, I pray for those who have believed, Lord, that you would strengthen their faith. They would follow you. They would put on Christ. Put on Christ and rest in his righteousness alone. And Lord, that they would follow you. They would not give up. Those who are weary and broken and tired. Lord, may, may this message of Christ's authority be like refreshing water to their weary souls. And Lord, those who, who have not trusted you, who are still carrying their own burden. Lord, I pray that you would not hide them, hide these things from them. Oh, that you would reveal these things to them, that they would, they would feel their need, they would be awakened to their burdens, they would see themselves as weary and insecure and, 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 and hopeless, and that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, and that they would confess you as Lord, and they would say, I want to follow you. Lord, please remove those barriers before them that would keep them from coming. And Lord, I pray that as we hear these messages, Lord, that none of us would leave here offended, but that we would rest assured that blessed is the one you sell us that is not offended by Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.